Amen, the great I am. Uh, probably uh, a lot of you old timers in here uh, recognize that first song that we sang this morning, Victory in Jesus, right? You know, if you're raised in the church, uh, you know the words of the song before you can read out of a hymnal, right? How many like that? Raise your hand, right? Yeah. Now that particular song, I can remember growing up as a little kid, uh, he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming love. I, I thought it was, he socked me and he boxed me <laughs> and with his redeeming love. But I, and quite honestly, I think throughout my life, there have been moments when I've needed to be socked and boxed, you know, to get, get myself lined up. But to know the word of, <laughs> word of God expressed in gospel tunes all my life is wonderful. Why don't you go to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at that today. I hope you have your, your Bibles or your devices with your Bibles on them. Uh, I, didn't do, I didn't do as well as Pastor Kevin. You're getting all the verses up here on the screen for you. So you're going to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at those passages together throughout my message. So just have it handy for you. The pastor has uh, left and went back to New York City where he was doing a wedding there. And then he was going to go visit his church, I believe, his other family back east. You know, he's got a, his East Coast family at Crossroads, and now he's got Olive Knowles here. So he's going to go back, back and visit them. I know he wanted to see his his in-laws, because he hadn't seen them for a while. And that's hard. Isn't that hard you, when you're away from family? I've got family in Virginia. We certainly miss them. And that, that's sometimes difficult. So I hope he's having a great time with all that. And ending up in Indianapolis for our General Assembly there, the church's General Assembly. And I'm sure that's going to be a rich time of him being able to connect with his friends uh, over the years. It's always great when you can be at General Assembly. It really, really is. So may God bless him in all of that. We're going to look at Mark chapter 6. There are uh, two miracles that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, one of them everybody knows about. Even if you're not in the church, you know about this miracle because people refer to it when they ridicule somebody who's kind of arrogant, thinks he's all that. They'll say something like, I bet he thinks he can walk on water too, right? Now, they may have never read the Bible, but they know that Jesus walked on water and people who think they're all that, you know, maybe they think they're the Messiah too. The other one, the other miracle, it's interesting about it that it is in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle that is in all four Gospels. And that's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, I've often wondered about that. Why that one? There's a lot of other miracles I think the gospel writers all could have wanted to write about, you know? Um, you know. Only John talks about Jesus' very first miracle, turning water into wine at Canaan, right? Uh, not even all the gospels have the walking on the water, you know? I would have thought that raising Lazarus from the dead would have been in all four gospels. It's only in John. And it's in John, in fact, it was the impetus for the final kind of straw that made the, the Jewish leaders want to plot to kill Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And if you read that scripture, you'll find there's even a reference that they were thinking about even killing Lazarus. That'd have been interesting. You know, let your Lazarus, you die, you're raised from the dead, and a few weeks later they'll kill you. You know, <laughs> what would that be? But, but not, those, aren't, those aren't all four gospels. There's only one and that's the feeding of the 5,000. So there's something about that miracle that kind of outshines all the others. Something that in those, 
that was so profound that God wanted us, God wanted us to take notice of it. He wanted us to see what this, this whole thing, this particular miracle, and he wanted us to experience something of it. And in the midst of that, you and I are going to look at a really outrageous command and a silly question that Jesus gives us in that whole passage. Now, I'll just warn you right now, this is a long passage. We're going to read it together, okay? And so, you know, if, if you feel like you can't handle that, it's okay. You can remain seated. But I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. And we're starting with Mark chapter 6, looking at verse 12 and 13 first to kind of get us into this. Jesus sends out his 12 on this evangelistic tour. And this is what he said in verse 12 of Mark 6. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now jump down to verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten were 5,000. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went into the hills to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, 
Would you please anoint this, this moment, this time, this hour? Help us to hear your voice. Help us to respond to you. Help us respond to you with a big yes. Speak to us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Amazed, uh, the Greek translation specifically, it means dumbfounded or out of wits. Out of wits. And if you look a little further in verse 49, the end of 49, 50, he says, they cried out because they saw him, he's walking in the water, they saw him and they were terrified. The direct translation of that would be they were shrieking in fear. Not just saying, hey. They were shrieking in fear. They're out of wits and shrieking in fear. Have you ever been shrieking in fear? I've been shrieking in fear before. I, I, the first, most earliest memory I have of myself shrieking in fear, and, and out of my wits too. I was uh, probably four or five years old. I was at my babysitter's house. Her name was Kaiser. We called her Kaiser. It's her last name. We said Kaiser. We called her. And my brothers and I we were playing in the backyard. We were running around playing chase them, you know, like kids will do. And there was this, this pit that they had been dug because they had, had to fix some plumbing or something. And so here's this pit in the backyard. And for little boys, I mean, that's just too fun, right? You got to jump in and out of it and jump in and out of it and chase it all around the tree and jump in and out of it. And so in one of these little circles around that tree chasing each other, I leaped in and there was this root of this tree that had been chopped off and had made a point. And my little body with full force landed with my foot on that, yeah, I was impaled. And that's when I started my shrieking in fear. <laughs> Being out of it, I was. I was just screaming. I was. I was inconsolable, in pain. I remember Kaiser had to call my mom, and she comes down, and she's trying to get me all consoled, quiet. And and I could still remember. Finally, I got it been laid down in the back seat of the the Hudson, and I'm in the back seat of that Hudson, and my mom can't control me. I'm kicking and whatever. There's blood everywhere, and she finally says this: "Is if you don't sit still for me to clean this wound, I'm going to take you to the doctor." So I was as still as I could be. They poured the stuff on and my foot stung, but I stayed stiff. And she wipes off all that blood. And I heard her say, oh, we're going to have to go to the doctor. <laughs> 16 stitches on my little itty bitty foot, you know. Yeah, it was, I, was, I was shrieking in fear. I was out of wits. They were, they were shrieking in fear. They were out of wits. Why? Because they did not understand the loaves. I guess what the writer's telling us here, had they understood the loaves, if their hearts hadn't been hardened, then they would not have been shrieking in fear. They would not have been out of wits. I want to understand the loaves. I, I want in my life too often, I don't know about you, but I've been out of wits and I've been filled with fear. And Jesus is saying, if you'll just soften your heart, if you'll understand the loaves, then that won't be your pattern. 
We need a paradigm shift. Stephen Covey, in his book, Seven Habits, he talks about a, a paradigm shift. Uh, he, he talks about being on this subway car, okay? He's sitting in this subway car, and it's peaceful. You know, you're sitting there reading, and, you know, we don't know about that kind of stuff in California, sitting in a, in a train like that and traveling for an hour or so, you know, just reading and whatever. But he says he, they came to a, a stop, and in this peaceful car with all these passengers, this father comes on the train, on that subway car. He comes on, and he has three or four children with him, and he just sits down and just starts staring at the floor. But his kids are running all over the place, screaming and hollering and disturbing everybody, right? And his father's sitting there not doing anything. And he started to get frustrated. He's going, as you would be, you know, come on, take care of your kids. And finally, he couldn't take it anymore. And he actually finally said it out loud. He said, sir, your children... And the man kind of just kind of looked up at him and goes, oh, uh, um, uh, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. Yes, you're right, you're right. Um, we just came uh, from the hospital. Their mother died, and I guess we don't know what to do. Now, for Stephen Covey, he says that was a moment of, of a, a paradigm shift, right? If from, from being anxious, being mad, being impatient, being angry, it all changed to compassion as it did in your heart too, right? And so we need a, a paradigm shift in our own hearts so that we understand about the loaves. Let's work on that. Let's set the stage. These guys have been on an evangelistic tour, 12 disciples, right? So they've gone on their evangelistic tour. They've actually cast out demons. They've actually healed people. And you can imagine, man, this is better than coming back from family camp. I mean, they are so excited about what's going on, right? And so they come back and they want to tell Jesus and they want to debrief and they want to talk about all this. And yet they can't. They keep getting interrupted. People keep coming in and out and disturbing this conversation. And so Jesus finally says, you know what? We, we got to get away from here so that we can kind of debrief and we can relax. Let's do that. And so they get in the boat. They're going to go across the lake and they're spotted. And when they get across the lake, look at verse 34. At verse 34, Jesus says, when he, Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. That wasn't the plan. They wanted to get away. They wanted time alone. I... I was a school teacher for 22 years. I got to tell you that in the morning when you get to school, I know teachers in here, you know what I'm talking about, you can't, you're trying to get ready for the day and you really don't want to be disturbed. You know, you got things you got to do. You know, I got this big day, all these plans, I got to make sure everything's in place and all that going on. And that was me. And I'd get there, but I had this one particular year especially, but it happened every year, but this one particular year especially, I had these kids that would come banging on my door and want to come in. And I was as generous and kind as I could be, but inside it was just churning, you know. i got to get some things done. And they, they show up every morning, and they hang out a year. And that's not my plans. And in the midst of my frustration, Jesus kind of said to me, you know what? This may not be yours, but it's mine. 
So maybe I just better get ready for school the day before, <laughs> spend a few hours after school so that I can pour into these kids' lives every morning when they came to my door. Jesus changes his plans for you and me, and we, he asks us to change our plans often for other people. That's what he wants us to do. So here they are, they're doing this, and in the midst of all this, Jesus is teaching and whatnot, the disciples decide to have a board meeting. Can you see it? They're all gathered over to one side. They're saying, hey guys, this is not really good. You know, I'm hungry, you're hungry. Those people are hungry. We can't feed them. I want to go to Denny's, you know. I want to go to Coconut Joe's. Let's do the, we got to get rid of these people. We didn't have our debrief with Jesus. We didn't have our time with him. You know, let's just convince Jesus that this isn't a good idea to hang around anymore and just send anybody away. So they took a vote. And by the way, it was unanimous. Unanimous decisions aren't always necessarily the right ones. They send Philip. Philip goes up and says, hey, Jesus, you know, uh, look, in fact, look at verse 37, okay? And basically, we have plans, and it doesn't include these people. <laughs> That's what they go to talk to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. That's an outrageous thing. Philip responds in, in the Gospel of John. He says, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one of them to have a bite. What would you have said? I know what I'd have said because I say it now. Maybe you've said it. That outrageous command, Jesus, that makes me really uncomfortable. Working in children's ministries, I don't think I want to do that. Those kids would just tire me out. Help out with youth? Yeah, no way, I don't want to do that. Love my crabby neighbor? I'm uncomfortable. I'd rather just stay in my house. See, I know what my response would be to him then because I know what my response is often to him now. Don't interrupt my comfortable life. Don't give me a change of plans. I like where I'm at right now. Oh, eight months wages wouldn't take care of these people. I, I, um, I, I can tell you, just as this personal testimony, that uh, I didn't really, really didn't want to be uh, your principal of all those Christian school. I was very comfortable with what I was doing. I was enjoying what I was doing. I was salt and light where I was at in a public school, and I loved it. And I was in, I was in a good place. I was just a cruise to retirement, man. This is going to be great. And Jesus says, that's how I want you to be. And he began working on me to come here. My own mother told me not to take the job, by the way. <laughs> but you can't ignore what Jesus asks you to do, right? Can I tell you what God does when we just come... We're going to talk about it in a second. We just bring our biscuits to him. Just a few weeks, just last week, two weeks ago, I guess, I watched our kids graduate, and two of those students had been expelled from other schools, public schools. They came, and God redeemed them. They had no other place to go. 
Redeem them academically, redeem them spiritually. What a beautiful thing. I had a little guy this last year who, uh, and, and all my teachers in here, public and private, would know this. You know, uh, our, our lockdowns didn't do our children very well. So I get this little second grade kid, basically, he'd never been in school in his whole life. Second grade. He didn't know how to handle it socially, emotionally, academically. But God's transformation upon him in his life in all those areas just would blow you away. For a while, he couldn't get to school on time. Couldn't figure out why he couldn't get to school on time. So uh, we found out that his, his mother was living in the east side of town, was getting on a bus to get him to school. So they'd leave early in the morning, go through all these little changes on the bus, get bus, and they'd drop them off on Olive Drive, they'd walk in to, to the school. Maybe an hour late. One of my teachers stepped up and says, well, I'll pick him up every morning. I'll bring him to school. That boy's life has changed. I had a dad the other day telling me, he says, you know what? Um, my daughter has grown so much in Jesus. She's convicting me. I need to get back to church. This is what God is doing. God is doing, not because of me, because he takes our little bit and he does something great with it. I got people who are so committed and love Jesus, ministering to these kids academically and spiritually, emotionally, socially, in every possible way. They're transforming lives. You're a part of that. Because what this church has done, bringing what we have, we're building a new wing out here. In 2015, when I arrived, we had 100, 180 kids on our campus enrolled. We're going to have over 300 kids this fall. And you're going to help us put them in, a, in classrooms. And we're going to kind of hang them from ceilings until then. But uh, Dan promises me that wing will be ready after Christmas. So we'll be there. And all these lives are being transformed. Do you know that more than about 80% of the students who have been baptized this year have come from the ministry of Pastor Kyle and Pastor Kaylee in our school? Right here. God's doing great things. And when we respond to his outrageous commands and we say, okay, okay, God, I'll do that. I love where it says um, in, in John, it says this, after Philip's question, you give them something to eat. It says this, he asked them only to test them for he already knew, excuse me, he already had in mind what he was going to do. You give them something to eat. He was testing them because he already knew what he was going to do. See, here it is. God already knows what he's going to do. He merely wants you to be a part of it. So he says, hey, what do we got, guys? Well, you know, they looked around, little boy here, he's got a little lunch, his mom packed for him. They've got five loaves, he's got two fish. All right. Set everybody down in groups. Let's pray. Let's break it. Now, I want you to picture this a little bit better. I, uh, th these aren't loaves, you know, that you buy at Winco, all right? Uh, I just got last week is this beautiful loaf of homemade bread from the Padilla family, which uh, me and my wife love it when they 
have a little extra, you know, this big loaf, it's great food, great, great, great. No, no, in first century Israel, these loaves are about the size of a biscuit, okay? These fish are about the size of sardines. So you basically got five biscuits and a couple of sardines, all right? That's what Jesus is working with here. And he blesses it, he begins to pass it around. Would it have mattered if he'd have had only one biscuit, one sardine? Would it have mattered if there were 100 people or 30,000 people? In the scriptures, it only counts the men. The men were 5,000. They had their wives with them and their kids with them, right? Would it have mattered? How many? How much? Does it matter to him at all? Not in God's economy. And then they gather up their 12 baskets full of pieces. You see, then the little boy gets to stand there next to Jesus and said, look what Jesus and I did. He calls you, he gives you these outrageous commands. And you don't feel adequate. Believe me, I didn't feel adequate. But with Jesus, it didn't matter. His provision, his plan, he already knows what he's going to do. He just wants to invite you to be part of the miracle. What a privilege is that? Jesus says, just bring your lunch. Maybe just a crumbly old biscuit, but we'll do something with that and you'll be amazed. God will amaze you when he does what he does. When we humbly bring what we have at the risk, and this is it, at the risk of losing my lunch. That little guy was giving it up. How, how do you feel like that when God asks you to tithe or bring an offering? And you think, I'm giving it up. I'm not going to have anything. And when you do, he brings him glory and he does great things. My mother marvels at that. My, my parents, we, we basically you know, grew up fairly poor, actually. I could still, you know, we had ripped jeans, but they weren't in style then. My mother would sew patches on them, you know. Some of you guys have lived like that, yeah. And yet, I look at my mother now. She's 91 pretty soon here, doing okay. And she marvels at what God has done. But my mother and my father were generous, generous, generous people. I don't know how they put food on the table for four boys. I really don't. I'm serious. I just kind of like, how'd you do that? But God takes care of our needs. So Jesus says to the disciples, hey, get in the boat. Go to the other side. I'll meet you there. I'll dismiss the crowd. He does that. He goes up into the hills to pray. Here's the triune God, the one who, the, the Son, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who have communed with each other for eternity, and Jesus feels compelled to go into the hills to pray. Folks, if he needs to do that, what do we need to do? Right? He had a prayer life. I need to have a prayer life. If the Son of God needs a prayer life, I certainly need one. And so he's up there, he's praying, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, he looks out and goes, oh, those guys are having a tough time. They can't get across the lake, the storm, and all that. 
And so then he starts out there, and then they start shrieking in fear because they see a ghost, right? And this is what he said. Look at, looks at, look at verse 50. He says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. In the original, he actually said it this way, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. I am Yahweh, the name of God. I am God, the God who interrupts your life with outrageous commands. I am the God, the God who takes your little biscuits and makes miracles out of them. I am the God. You don't need to be shrieking in fear. You don't need to be out of wits. Turn back to Matthew. Keep your finger there, Mark. We're going to come back to it. Go to Matthew. And go to Matthew, and let's look at verse, uh, chapter 14. Chapter 14 of Matthew, all right? And just listen to this account. It starts at uh, verse 27, so Matthew 14, 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. In other words, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And I got to tell you this, I never understand that. I really, really don't. You know, Peter says, you know, if it's you, tell me to come out of the water. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what if it's not him? And he tells you to come out of the water. I don't know. That, Peter's bold. I don't know. See, Jesus says, come. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, begin, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? What a silly question. Come on. I'm walking on water. I don't do that every day. And it storms. The waves is high. Of course. Of course. Why did I doubt? I mean, come on. Why do we doubt? God, have you seen my finances? God, have you seen my neighbor? God, have you seen my family? God, have you seen... Why do I doubt? Isn't it obvious why I doubt? Have you seen my boss, my work situation? Why do you doubt? And in the midst of it, Jesus says to them, I am. I am. When you go back over to Mark, and you look at verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and they healed them. They go from these this midst of these miracles because of the great I am to being doubters, to shrieking in fear, to being out of wits. In verse 51, it says to us, they were completely amazed for they had not understood the loaves, their hearts were hardened. The Bible talks about this a lot, about our hardened hearts. And folks, when our hearts are hard, we cannot hear the message of God. And we, we have this, this cardiosclerosis, right? And it's because we're, we have forgetfulness. We forget what God has done in the past and we don't realize he's gonna do it again now. Or maybe sin has creeped into our life and we don't wanna, we don't wanna go to the light, we wanna stay in the darkness because we don't wanna respond to that outrageous command. So we're gonna, we're gonna stay over here. Our heart gets hard. That sin that creeps in, I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago who talked about 
being disappointed with God, and I'm thinking to myself, as I talked with him, it's because you want to live in sin, and yet you expect God. Heart was hard. We gotta soften our heart. To not be out of wits, to not be shrieking in fear. At the turn of the century, the 20th century, uh, is the birth of the Church of the Nazarene. Historically, we call it then when we had this merger between uh, three or four different denominations that had sprung up out of, uh, after the Civil War, all these different holiness movements. And during that merger in 1908, we inherited, as the Church of the Nazarene, a missionary that was already out in Africa. His name is Harmon Schmelzenbaugh, the first. And Harmon... Great missionary, great man of God. Uh, then came in Harmon Schmelzabah II, who also was a missionary. And then there came in Harjan Schmelzabah III. Can you imagine having that name and, and going three times? Uh, he became a missionary. They went four times. Harmon Schmelzabah IV. My wife and I were several years ago at Benita Park, and it's this park that, uh, this, this campground established by my grandfather back in the 1930s for the Nazarene Church in New Mexico. And on that mountainside that overlooks the Rockies, the Southern Rockies, there's Schmelzenbaugh, the fourth, and Cindy, his wife, and their two little ones, they had a cabin. And my wife went to go visit Cindy one day, and her little munchkins were all running around, and she was telling them about their calling and what they would be doing soon. They were going to be taking a, and I believe it was a 30-foot boat, out on the Pacific. And they were going to be sailing from island to island to island to these places where missionaries can't get to, to deliver the gospel. And I'm thinking about this. They got two little kids, and the Pacific is not always peaceful. <laughs> Harmon happened to have his captain's license. He was qualified, but still, you know, there's storms. There's all the stuff that can happen. Maybe people don't like you when you get to that island. I don't know. It doesn't look good to me. So Cindy's sharing that with Norma and I, and she says this. She says this. I am safer in that little boat with my two little children and my husband in the middle of a storm than I am here in this cabin looking at the Rockies. She said, because this is why. Because on that boat, in the middle of a storm with my children, I am in the center of God's will. And if I stayed here, I wouldn't be. She's a woman who isn't out of wits, who isn't shrieking in fear because she knows the great I am that walks with her. She responds to his outrageous commands and she doesn't doubt. Oh, may that be who I am. May that be who we become. Let's pray together. Holy Father, you are the great I am who sent your son that gives us an opportunity to join in with you in the miracles that you want to do. Oh, Holy Father, we give you praise that we can participate with you and we can 
be part of your plan, part of what you're wanting to do in this world, in our lives, we can see those miracles. I give you praise for those in this room who said yes to your outrageous commands. God, encourage them today. May they, their heart be, be just filled with faith. May they not doubt that in the midst of what you've called them to do, dear God, that they can sense your presence and know that you are with them. You are the great I am. And for those that are hanging back, who are saying no, who are reluctant, God, help them to say yes. Oh, God, bless us as we respond to you now. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen.